Hello, our dear Cornerstone Boulder family. We're so excited to be able to say hi to you. My name is Rodolfo and Andrea, my wife. We are senior pastors of Vereda Church here in Mexico City. First of all, we want to thank you once again for the generous gift that you that we received from you uh, on the middle of the year, which allowed us to buy a sound system. Uh, again, one of the things we, we did before is we rented uh, a sound system every single week so uh, to be able to have church. Now, with your gift, we were able to buy something that we now, our resources can be invested in having uh, this venue that we can rent the whole week, the whole month. This place is something we can use Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every single day of the week, which has been such a gift. And now we want to be intentional in not just being a church on Sunday, but being a community center every single day. We want to enrich our, our communication with both our community and the community where we're placed in. So we are, for example, every Wednesday, we're building a co-working space. Every person that's still working from home, that's st still doing uh, online. Uh, online, online work, can come here. We'll provide internet and good coffee, and let's strengthen the relationships in between us and the community. The other thing that we have been doing is every uh, Friday, we are serving and, and giving groceries for everybody that it is still in need and is having a rough time. We are uh, being able to be a blessing. So we, uh, as you can see, this place looks anything but a church. <laughs> and we wanted to take that intentionally to build a, a community center, a place that everybody can walk every single day of the week and just feel at home and, 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 and decompress and be able to tell us their story because we want to be there for the community. We didn't come here to establish a kingdom, but to be a, ple a blessing to everybody that's here. We want to give you thanks because your gift allows us to dream bigger than ourselves. Your dream allows us to keep being a blessing to the community where God placed us. And for that, we're very, very thankful. Cornerstone Boulder, we continue to call you family as you have treated us like family. Please uh, let, know that we are praying for you, that we are thankful and that we stand together on this with you. We are here to establish God's kingdom on the earth. in La Ciudad de Mexico. It's my church. It's my home church there. And uh, Rodolfo and Andrea are amazing. Uh, I've gotten to be really close to Rodolfo. He's a very teachable young man. He actually reminds me of Brian. The church reminds me of Cornerstone. And a cool connection is Rodolfo actually is Italian. His last name is Peregrino. Um, so we got Carlucci and Peregrino. It's just a, it just made sense. <laughs> to partner with them. So if you ever get to, to Mexico City, go check them out. Vareta actually translates from Spanish into sidewalk, but it's a cool way of saying the path. That's what their, their name represents. So we've been, um, and we've been you know, highlighting um, organizations that we're supporting. Every Advent, we give substantial gifts, and we very substantial gifts this week to four organizations. 
They're one of the recipients. And we've been lighting the Advent candles. Advent means to kind of arrive uh, or come. And um, Brian started off with light and uh, in the message of the first week in, uh, what was that, November 28th. And, and Aaron did hope last week. And we're going to do love. So I'm going to light three of these. Maybe, maybe not. There's one. It's a bummer when the candles are taller than me. It just doesn't seem right. Don't laugh. <laughs> okay. Y'all doing well? Everybody doing okay? So, I remember a time like years ago where Andy and I said, we will never be like one of those couples. You know the kind of couple I'm talking about? I'm talking about the couple who treat their dog like it's their child, (laughs) who dress them up in special clothing, take them everywhere they go. We said we'd never be one of those couples, but we did. And now we're on our second spoiled, rotten dog. I mean, we had a chance to redeem ourselves when our long coat chihuahua buddy, y'all remember Buddy? He's so famous here. Died last year just uh, as the pandemic was heating up. Here's a photo of Buddy. (laughs) Is he just too cool for his glasses? Those are called doggles, by the way. And when he died, we said we'd never get another dog again. It was just too painful, and we didn't want to become one of those couples. But that only lasted four months when Fuego came into our lives. And here's Fuego. He's our guard dog. He sits by that window and keeps his eye out for terrorists because they're coming, you know. And Fuego, like me, he loves food. And at dinnertime, he sits patiently by us, waiting and hoping that some tiny morsel of food will magically fall from the sky. And trust me, plenty of morsels do. And by the way, have you ever heard someone using the phrase, the sky is falling, or it's raining cats and dogs? Those are both English idioms. Uh, But over the centuries, really strange things have actually fallen out of the sky. For instance, in 2005, the residents of Ozatsi, Serbia, experienced thousands of tiny living frogs falling out of the sky onto the ground and also onto the heads of unsuspecting Serbians walking around. And it happened when a, a, a tornado water spout scooped them up into the sky and then dropped them moments later onto this sleepy town. In Brazil, 2019, thousands of creepy spiders began raining from the sky. It wasn't a water spout. It's something that uh, is caused with a process called ballooning. I just learned this, okay? Where spiders produce filaments to launch themselves into the air in an attempt to kind of catch an air current to travel to a new location. And it actually is something that is quite common, but it's extremely rare for a huge population of spiders to do this simultaneously. Here's a, here's a picture of it right here. Can you imagine? Those little guys, pretty creepy, huh? And then in April of 2018, the entire Chinese space station called Tiangong-1 fell out of the heavens and burned up somewhere over the South Pacific Ocean. You all remember that? 
Um, Tiangam, by the way, means heavenly palace. And it's a good segue into my message because 2,000 years ago, something really incredible did fall to earth out of the real heavenly palace, and that something was God himself. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And so 2,000 years ago, love came down from heaven. God himself in human flesh, born in a structure that housed farm animals in a little Israeli town called Bethlehem. Wasn't the first time God made an appearance on earth? He once had breakfast with Abraham. Remember that? He once wrestled with Jacob. And there's a couple of other uh, occasions where he made brief cameo visits on earth. But this appearance 2,000 years ago is entirely different from all the previous appearances because this time God came to earth not making a brief cameo experience, but this time he came as a baby through the womb of a Jewish woman named Miriam. And he transitioned through all the growth stages of life that you and I have to uh, transition through and would learn firsthand what the human experience is like. The joys, the temptations, the challenges, even the tragedies. And because God experienced all all that humanity offers during his 33 years here on earth, Hebrews 14, 415 says this. We do not have a God who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tested in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In other words, and don't don't miss this, okay? God learned something. He learned how to empathize better with our human struggles through his experience firsthand with human struggling. And I love that. I mean, one of the reasons God left the comfort of heaven is that he could better understand and empathize with us. Our human uh, story series that we did over the last four months was highly successful. I know uh, many of you came to that. And our goal in this series was to listen to the various struggles uh, that we presented so that we could all gain more understanding and empathy for the people who struggle in life. We may not agree or we... We might disagree with some of the, thing, the topics that we have, with some of the political stuff or theological stuff, but that wasn't the point. The point was to empathize and understand the people who's in those stories who struggle. Um, something that God himself did when he walked on earth as a man. And if there's anything to learn from God's incarnation, it's the only way to gain understand and empathy. The only way is to get up close and personal with people who struggle. Too many times our views about people or groups of people are formed at a distance, like in a vacuum, which then makes it easy to make uninformed prejudices and judgments. But when you actually take the time to understand these struggles by meeting people face-to-face, those who struggle those prejudices tend to fade away and empathetic relationships are formed. Well, 2,000 years ago, love came down to get up close and personal with us. And what I like to do with the rest of our time, I just want to simply look at a few stories where the incarnate God of love intersected with human struggles. And even though many of you have heard these stories time and time again, my prayer is that you will hear them today in a fresh, new way 
and I think you will, okay? In fact, let's pray before I start. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift you gave us of coming to make a visitation here, a long one, 33 years you walked on earth. And I pray that we would gain understanding and empathy as you did through the stories that we are about to hear. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the first story is found in John chapter 8, and it's the story about a woman caught in the act of adultery, an offense punishable by death according to the Torah, according to the law. And the lesson to learn in this story is about having equity and empathy for everyone. Okay, John 8, 1 through 6 says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple court. So he's down in Jerusalem. He's up in the temple where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such, a, such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap to trick him, right? In order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. That's a strange thing to do, huh? Now, it's important to notice that this whole event is a trap. It's a setup. They want to try and catch Jesus breaking the Torah commandment by not carrying out the full consequences of this woman's sin, which makes this a really deceptive, cruel, and very unempathetic event, since they are using the fate of a human life as a way to trap Jesus. These Jewish leaders could care less about this woman. Their mission is not to deal humanely and fairly with her. Their mission is to discredit and dehumanize or maybe de-deify Jesus, something so many people do today with real human stories in the headlines. For instance, the story of Jesse Smollett, for instance, which is just fresh in, in the headlines today, the, the black gay man who was convicted of faking being attacked by right-wing white supremacist Trumpers, he said. Now, it doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with the verdict or whether you believe or disbelieve his story or whether you're a liberal or a conservative, okay? This is not a political thing. What you need to see is how we are baited into using stories like these to further personal agendas. And we forget that these are real human beings in these stories, people made in the image and likeness of God, people whose family and friends love them. And instead, we dehumanize these people in order to promote an agenda, a particular agenda. And that's what is taking place with this woman caught in adultery. Can you see that? I mean, I hope you can, and I hope it breaks your heart to see how so many people in the headlines today are used to either support or attack certain beliefs or positions. And that neither side really cares about the person involved. What they really care about is using the situation to further their agenda. Every human being on this planet deserves to be treated with kindness and respect, despite whether they do good things or bad things with their lives. 
And one other thing to notice in this story is that the penalty of death for those committed adultery in the Torah, that's what the penalty was. It doesn't discriminate because of gender. Both the male and the female were to be put to death. So did you happen to notice in the story that the man is nowhere in sight? Did you pick that up at all? If you hadn't, you should. Did he get a wink from this patriarchal all-male mob who then sent him on his merry way as if nothing ever happened? We're just not told of his fate. But I guarantee you that Jesus notices his absence and that this gender inequity is breaking his heart. And you know, many people try to guess what Jesus might be scribbling in the dirt with his finger. I, you know, you've probably heard a dozen messages with a different opinion, so I'm going to show you mine. My best guess is that he's writing the two Hebrew words, Epho Ha'ish. Epho Ha'ish. Where's the man? What happened to the man? Why isn't he standing before us as well? Epho Ha'ish. John 8, 7 and 8 says that while Jesus is scribbling in the dirt, they keep on questioning him. In other words, they're pushing and they're pushing on Jesus to weigh in on this matter. Will you put this woman to death as the law demands or will you break the law proving that you are not from God? And as they continue to push Jesus, it says that he straightens up. I mean, he stands up. He's on the ground. He's scribbling. Now he's standing up. And he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stoops down and he begins to write in the dirt. Where's the man? Verse 9 says that all... At this, those who heard him, meaning all the men, begin to go away one at a time. The older ones first. If you're older, you get this. Because part of the job of getting older is to realize you know a lot less than you thought you knew when you were younger. Amen? Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And could it possibly be that the obvious sin Jesus has in mind here when he says, let anyone who is without sin cast the first stone, that maybe he's not talking about just generally, but he's got something specific in mind, is how the crowd was not applying the law equally as they should. And I'm just speculating, so... Just know that because the text isn't clear, but I believe this interpretation is well within the realm of possibility. Because many times in the Torah, applying the, the law with equity is taught in the metaphor of using honest scales. And they are not using honest scales in this situation. Now, many people use this passage to prove that Jesus came to do away with the Torah because he obviously did something contrary to the Torah, but did he? Did Jesus break the law here? 
by not allowing the woman to be stoned to death as the Torah prescribes. The law is perfectly clear. The penalty for this offense is death. But the law is also perfectly clear that there must be at least two witnesses to condemn an adulterer to death. And so after Jesus sees that all the eyewitnesses have left, he stands up a second time, but now speaks directly to the woman in verse 10 and 11. Woman, where are they? Where are the witnesses? Where are the ones who, who condemn you? And she kind of goes, uh, they're, they're not here, sir. <laughs> and Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now, why wouldn't Jesus condemn her? Because he didn't witness the event. And all the witnesses are gone. And so at this point, Jesus would have broken the law if he condemned her to death. But actually fulfills the letter of the law by saying to her, go now and leave your life of sin. It's a brilliant move that outplays the players. Jesus knew that these leaders, they had zero empathy for this woman. They were merely using her as a way to support their agenda to discredit Jesus. How many of you are familiar with the TV series that has Judge Frank Caprio? Anybody? He's very popular, but evidently not with this crowd. He's a judge. And he's got like a, just like Judge Judy, but he's like the antithesis of Judge Judy. If you know, anybody know Judge Judy? Okay, y'all know her. Well, you need to know Judge Frank Caprio. Another Italian, obviously. And uh, I like to watch what he does because he inspires me to see beyond my own prejudices and to try and understand and have empathy for each person that comes into his courtroom. Watch this clip. Ticket was issued at 959. Uh, I had, right. 959 and 58 seconds. And you can't park there until 10 o'clock. And you violated the city ordinances. These are the city ordinances, Inspector Quinn, that she violated. That point, that point two will get you every time, Judge. Why have we gone viral? And I and I think it's because uh, people are so accustomed and conditioned to the institutions of government coming down, you know, hard on them without regard for any personal situations. You know, life is difficult at best. Because my son was recently killed last year. So they got my check because he had old money. I'm going to reduce this to uh, $50. How much time do you need to pay it? I have it on me now. All right. That's not going to leave you without any money, is it? I'll leave it with $5. Thank you, Rolando. <clears throat> I'm not going to leave you with $5. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going, to, I'm going to dismiss everything. I am particularly sensitive when youngsters come into the courtroom because I think that the conduct of a jurist in the presence of youngsters can 
shape their thinking in a way that may affect their future, particularly their attitude toward the institutions of government. Your mom is charged with parking on a sidewalk, okay? And that fine is $100. So you, you have not had breakfast today. Thank you. Oh. Well, suppose I make a deal with your mom, okay? That if she buys you breakfast when you leave, that I'll dismiss, the, I'll dismiss it. Is that a good deal? And I think I should take into consideration whether somebody is sick and whether their mother died and whether they have kids who are starving and whether all of those real life situations, you know, are so important to me, right? In other words, I don't wear a badge under my robe. I wear a heart under my robe. He always breaks me up. I mean, we need more people like Judge Frank Caprio. The second story I want to look at is about when Jesus heals a leper. And I call this story Touching the Untouchables. Matthew 8, 1 through 3 says, When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Lepers in Jesus' day were forced to live outside the city walls. And if they did happen to encounter the public, they were required to yell, unclean! And create some distance between themselves and the others as they passed by. Ancient social distancing, so to speak. Thus, they were considered to be untouchable. And so this story is powerful enough that Jesus simply heals the man. But the real power in this story is that Jesus touches an untouchable, which would have now made him unclean as well. Now listen, through modern science, let's all listen to the science, okay? Through modern science, we know today that you cannot contract leprosy by human touch. A science that I suspect Jesus knew since he was God. You can, however, contract leprosy by aspiration through sneezing or coughing or breathing. And so by just getting in this leper's space, Jesus put his health at some risk. And even though I can't say for certain that Jesus took some reasonable precaution when he touched this man, I can say that Jesus felt that the risk that he did take was necessary for this man's emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being. Jesus knew that this man not only needed to be healed, he needed even more to be touched. Listen to what an article in Psychology Today says about this. This is a really recent article that takes the pandemic in view here. It says, it has been found that touch calms our nervous centers, slows down our heartbeat. Human touch also lowers blood pressure as well as cortisol, our stress hormone. It also triggers the release of oxytocin, the hormone known for promoting emotional bonding to others. Studies using PET scans have found that the brain quiets in response to stress when a person's hand is held. 
Whenever I visit somebody in the hospital or somebody sick, I always hold their hand or touch their arm. Research also suggests a negative correlation between touch and the severity of borderline personality disorder symptoms. This suggests that the effects of touch extend to our basic neural circuitry. Even our immune response seems to be somewhat governed by touch, with the finding that those who are deprived of human touch are more likely to suffer from immune system diseases. It's ironic that during a highly contagious pandemic, meaning this one, where our immune systems are being most stressed, we are being deprived of human touch that is so essential to its function. Just uh, on Thanksgiving morning, I was, I was t- taking Fuego for a walk, and I crossed paths with two women who were out for a walk with their toddlers. And so I asked them if they were returning from the turkey trot, because that had just taken place in downtown Louisville. And they said, oh, heavens no. We haven't been to downtown Louisville since the start of the pandemic. In fact, this is really our first time venturing out in public beyond our neighborhood, other than going to the grocery store and things like that. And, you know, for a long time during this pandemic, the media was avoiding talking about the emotional and the mental and the physical toll extreme isolation was having on people, especially young people. And it's only been recently, even like an article like Psychology Today, it's only been recently that they've been citing things like the increase in mental and emotional breakdowns and the surging suicide rates, especially in teens. Now, just to be clear... I got vaccinated just as soon as I could. I got a booster just a couple of weeks ago. I wear a mask when I'm in situations that seem to be unsafe. And I wish everyone else would do the same thing. Okay? But if, you were to, if, if we are to learn anything from the story of Jesus touching this leper, it's that human intimacy is so important for human flourishing. Human intimacy is so important for human flourishing. That it's worth taking some risks to do so. I'm a hugger. Most of you know that. I actually prefer to hug over a handshake any day. And the science is pretty clear with COVID that you are very unlikely to contract COVID from a hug if you take some reasonable precaution while doing so. However, there are some risks involved, of course, you know, but what is the risk of continuing to live in isolation? Is that really living? The stats that are now being released today say no, and truly, I believe that Jesus, being God, knew that you can't contract leprosy from human touch, but did know that there was a minimal risk from aspiration, and it's my opinion that he probably did take some precaution. It's just my opinion, and it's only my opinion, but one thing I'm even more convinced of is that Jesus touched this man for his own well-being just as much for the man's well-being. Jesus needed human intimacy just as much as we do. In God's economy, no one is untouchable, not even God himself, okay? By the way, if you'd like to touch a human life, 
Come this Tuesday night right here in this room at, 8, at 7 p.m. Uh, for an informational meeting on how to learn how we can help with Afghan refugees. Our first family is due to arrive here around January 3rd. They're actually in an Airbnb right now. Airbnb is doing a cool thing. They're, they're donating time in some of their homes to Afghan refugees while they're transitioning into a more permanent home. And um, we have a family of five that's going to arrive here around January 3rd. We can visit them right now in Westminster. Um, that's going to be awesome to be able to touch people who need to be touched in this moment where they've have to left everything. They really come with nothing. Okay, the last story I want to share with you is what I call Nick at Night, the mystery of salvation. Um, how are we doing on time? Oh, we're okay. Okay. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee based in Jerusalem. And who knows, maybe he was one of those Pharisees in the Jerusalem temple that day who made the woman caught in adultery stand before Jesus. He might have been. And maybe that event caused him to reevaluate his spiritual life. In any case, he comes in the veil of night, under the cover of night, to meet with Jesus, not wanting anyone else to know what he's doing. Okay, and here's what John 3, 1 through 10 says. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now keep in mind, Nick hasn't asked Jesus a question to this point. He's only made a statement, right? And yet Jesus, already knowing why he's come, knows that he's worried about his spiritual life and cuts right to the chase like he's answering a question. Jesus replies, very truly. It's really truly, truly. Whenever Jesus says truly twice, it's worth listening to, okay? Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Well, how can someone be born if, if, when they are old, Nicodemus says. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So Nick, he's obviously confused about what Jesus is talking about because the idea of spiritual rebirth to being born again is foreign to this Orthodox Jew. Uh, a few years ago, I went to Israel and I, I, um, I connected with an Orthodox Jewish man who was teaching Hebrew and we spent like three days together. It was awesome just studying Hebrew. We drove to some of the sites in Israel together. And one day we're sitting at, 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 in, in Shiloh, a little bit north of Jerusalem. And we're sitting having lunch. And he says, you know, you Christians, he, even though he knew I was Jewish, you know, you Christians, you always say, oh, I want to feel God. I want to feel God's presence. He says, you know, we Jews, you know how we feel God? We obey his commandments. And I began to talk to him about a deeper relationship with God that requires spiritual rebirth. It's one of the most fascinating discussions I've had with an Orthodox Jewish person ever. Jesus explains this born-again concept further, saying, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised 
at my saying this. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how, how can this be? And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? And per Nick, you know, he's really trying to understand what Jesus is getting at here. And then Jesus makes it perfectly clear what he's getting at in John 16 and 17. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save or rescue the world through him. And of course, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here about how, the, how his atonement that he'll make on the cross that's coming up will provide eternal life for all those who believe in him. And Nick comes to Jesus because even though he's a devout religious Jewish man, he inherently knows that there's something missing. And what's missing is eternal his eternal security has no assurance about what will happen to him when he dies. King Solomon wrote, this isn't going to be on the screen, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that God puts eternity in our hearts. So we know, we know when there's something missing. Someone once said that, that this creates like a huge hole in our heart that can only be filled by believing in the atoning work that Jesus did for us on the cross, a work where he takes our sins upon himself so that we become righteous through faith, assuring our eternal destiny. Have you done that? And we don't talk about this a lot. We, we'd like to inspire you to, to, and draw you to Jesus, and we, we, we know that a lot of you meet Jesus that way, but... Let me just make it perfectly clear. That is the most important thing Jesus came to do was to get you right with God so that you can be assured of your eternal destiny. Like Nicodemus, you too can be born again through faith in Jesus, filling that hole in your heart that I know, you know if it hasn't been filled, you know it's there, I was in me almost 40 years ago now. Do you know what happens to Nicodemus? He's mentioned two more times in the scriptures, but the third time he's mentioned, he's one of the people to help put Jesus in the tomb. Did you know that? No more hole in his heart. And today you can fill the hole that's in yours. By just saying yes. It's so simple, it's hard. Just yes, I believe. I want to follow you, Yeshua. You know what Yeshua means? God's salvation. Yahshua. I want to follow you. So during this Christmas season, we acknowledge that the advent, that love came down from heaven to bring equity and empathy in our relationships, to declare that no one is untouchable, and to offer eternal life through spiritual rebirth. First John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus came to give us and show us a way to love the way he did. 
Now, we're going to take communion together. We've got uh, communion cups on, on your table or on your chair. And I'd like to do something different for communion. You know, communion, first of all, it's common union. It's our common union of faith in Jesus. And when we come together, we acknowledge his death and his resurrection, the power that he gives us to be able to, like him, rise from the dead. Which will happen when he returns. And we're not going to take this together. I'm not going to lead you through something. I'd like to show a clip that I hope will stir your hearts as it stirred mine. It's a clip from the series The Chosen, only this is a special Christmas video, short video that they made. You can go on, on The Chosen website and watch it. In fact, you can watch now two seasons. They're amazing if you haven't started watching it. They're just absolutely amazing. And, um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a parable of the time when the angels come and speak to the shepherds that are out in their fields. And there's, they do a little bit of backstory. There's just one shepherd who's, who's got a, a, a very infected foot. Something's going on there, and it's very serious. It's not getting better. And some of the other shepherds are wanting to kind of leave him behind where he would just certainly die. <clears throat> and so here they are in their fields, and this one shepherd with the bad foot is off trying to, to figure some things out about that when the angels come. And after they make the announcement, he, begins, he and the other shepherds begin to run towards uh, Bethlehem. And it's pretty obvious that this man's foot has been healed. And he doesn't even realize it for a while. And he finally throws his staff. Love came down to rescue us. So somewhere during this clip or during the last worship song, please, just yourself, just between you and Jesus, if you haven't trusted with in him and you haven't put your faith in him, just eat the bread, his body broken for you. Drink the juice, his blood poured out for you. And those of you who have already made that decision, just be inspired that God himself would leave the comfort of heaven to come here for us.